You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Morning. If you have your outline, take it out of your program. You're going to want to write some stuff down today. We're in a series called Be Intentional. We actually uh, have been doing a video podcast each week of this series. And I want you to go and look at those. You go to sungrove.org and watch about a 20-minute video podcast because it'll, uh, it'll give you insights if you are... Uh, a parent. It'll give you insights if you're a high schooler. This week, it's for high schoolers and the parents of high schoolers. And this is really important because we're going to talk a little bit today about trust versus doubt. And what does it look like that both trust and doubt can increase our faith? And so we've got some of our uh, youth workers and some of our staff kind of unpacking for you high schoolers and for parents of high schoolers, like how to go deeper in the issues that you face in school and when you doubt and how to trust God in the midst of that. And so it's really valuable, the video podcast, and I think you'll really enjoy that. There's some testimonies on there, I think, in this one this week from some high schoolers who've had to watch through some difficult experiences. But we're in this series called Be Intentional, and we, we've kind of started this series off saying that nothing good ever happens by accident. Very good. Nothing good ever happens by accident. Maybe your parents told you that. Maybe you heard that on social media. You thought of that. You heard it in the business place. And it's true that we have to be intentional in our lives. And, and, and I just want to know when it comes to the issue of trusting or doubting that we see people along all scopes of that spectrum. And we have a weird culture because it believes that you either have to trust and you can't doubt. And, and where is there a balance in that? And we're going to look at that a little bit today. I know a woman who grew up in church and she believed God, but in her adult years, she wandered away from God. And then because she wandered from God and because in her wandering, she had some doubts, she literally felt like I can't ever come back to God or I can't come back to church because of how I've lived. In fact, she actually, in this conversation, tried to use Bible verses to back it up. Like here's Bible verses why I can't come back, which she was taking out of context because of course you can I know a young man had a conversation with him one time, and he basically just said, I, I never doubt. I just always trust. I never, ever doubt God. I just always trust. And literally, it's like, it's almost like he turned around, and I felt like he just put his head down in a hole in the sand. And I was like, man, life is going to shake you sometime. Because there's a tension between trust and doubt, and we're going to experience both of those experiences. I know high school and college students right now who are convinced that they've got to choose between science or faith and not balance the tension between the two. But the truth is we all doubt at times. We all have experiences that also build our confidence in who God is. This high school podcast will help you understand the difference between trusting and doubting. And I want to look at that a little bit today. Barnabas Piper said this. He said, quote, Christians who don't know the tension of, I believe, help my unbelief, might not be Christians at all, or at least they might be very infantile ones. Our faith is one of brutal tensions. Not everyone can express this, but every Christian knows it. We feel it in our guts. And Oz Guinness wrote this. He said, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. Right? If we're going to be examined, if our faith is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing, what we were believing was clearly not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. And I want you to know today that trust 
leads to stronger faith, but also doubt leads to stronger faith. And sometimes you might not think that it does, but I think God leverages and uses both. And all throughout scripture and all throughout the history of Christianity, we've watched people increase their faith through the process of trust and through the process of doubt. In other words, no matter how strong your faith is, at some point you may experience doubt. And instead of being a sign of weakness, doubt can be actually be something that causes your faith to grow, causes your faith to deepen your relationship with God and can make your faith stronger. Sometimes God uses doubt to move us from immature faith to mature faith as we get those questions answered. Here's what I want you to write down. It's not on your outline, but I want you to write this statement down. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. So often we think that it is. Like we're afraid, oh my goodness, if I doubted, maybe my faith isn't strong. Maybe it's an indication that my faith is weak. And the truth is doubt is not the enemy of faith. In fact, God will use both to increase your faith. He'll use trust and doubt to increase your faith. You know, most of us have heard about Jesus and some of us have doubts. But doubt isn't always a bad thing. Doubts lead to questions. Questions lead to answers. Answers lead to truth, and Jesus said the truth will set you free. So doubt's not necessarily a bad thing if it leads you toward truth, and that's an important thing. All of us doubt. I doubt a lot of things. I get these calls on my phone, and it's people saying they're from the IRS, and they've been trying to reach me. I doubt that. Don't you? I doubt that. At the same time, I get these things on social networking where people are like, if you care for me at all, you're going to copy and paste this and send it to everyone if you're truly my friend. And if you don't, you're a bad person. And I doubt that. I doubt that like a piano is going to fall on my head in my office if I don't copy and paste that thing. I, I have doubts about that. I actually doubt that. There's kind of a little shame to it, isn't there? I doubt life is a cosmic accident. I believe there's design and intent in all that we experience. The mess in your teenager's bedroom on the floor is not given enough time and enough neglect going to somehow self-organize itself and tidy itself up without intelligent intervention. I mean, you can carbon date it, you can wait for it, but it simply isn't going to happen. I doubt political promises. I doubt power without checks and balances won't corrupt even the best person. Some of us have doubts. You have doubts about God and the Bible, maybe about church and about life. You doubt your marriage will make it. You doubt whether your friends will be loyal because you see how your friends treat other people. And you're like, if that's how they treat someone who's formerly their friend, I'm not so sure that they'll be loyal to me. You might doubt that. You doubt that God will touch and influence and help your impossible situation. You doubt that you would ever be able to get out of debt. You doubt that you'd ever be able to be the man you want to be or the woman that you want to be. You doubt that you will be successful. We all doubt lots of things. Some of you would say, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, you're doubting that knowing him will make a difference in your life because you look at people who say, I know Jesus, but you're watching their life and even though they claim to know Jesus, you're trying to understand where the difference is. Like, why would I want to believe in Jesus when I look at your life even as compared to mine because I just don't see the difference in what you're talking about. You and I can have doubts. And here's what I want you to realize today. When in doubt, focus on who, not how. When in doubt, focus on who, 
not how. We're fascinated with the idea of how, aren't we? Right? You watch a magician and you're like, how did you do that? How did you get that magic trick to work? You look at someone and you're like, how did you get your kids to actually be polite? You look at others and you're like, how did you get to the next level in your job or in your business? Or if, even if you're a junior high or high school, you're going to be, how did you get to the next level in that video game? You want to know how. You're like, what's the trick? Are there cheat codes? How do you get from where you are to where you'll be? And then the most important question, how did you get her to date you? Right? That's the big one. Like, how in the world did, it just doesn't seem to line up. It's almost impossible. Instead of always asking how, we need to begin to ask the question, who? Because who is relational? Who gets to know the person? So when in doubt, focus on who, not how. How reaches for certainty, doesn't it? If I can just know how these chairs are constructed, then I can give faith that when I sit down in these chairs that you're sitting in today will actually hold you when you sit down. In fact, most of you gave faith to the chair without really even thinking about it. But if it was a rickety-looking old chair with cracks down the middle and it looked very plasticky, you might not give it faith today, right? You want to know how that thing is going to hold you. And so you're going to give it faith. And how reaches for certainty, Certainty seeks the removal of faith. Do you understand that? If I can just be certain, if I can have all the facts, then faith is not necessary. So sometimes when you and I are asking, how? How, God, are you going to do this? How, God, are you going to fix this? How, God, would that ever work out? How did creation ever happen? When, when When you're asking for that, you're asking for certainty, which means I don't have to trust God, it does not require faith from me. So if we're always asking how, it's because we're trying to remove the need for faith. I mean, how romantic and trusting is a prenuptial agreement? Not very relational, is it? Right? You want like certainties. Hey, I don't want life to bite me. I don't want this thing. So you want to, you know, do that. It's not very relational. It's very independent. Even if you're saying we're coming together in a relationship, something like that would say, I still want to be very independent. John Calvin wrote this. He said, Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. Right? That whole, like, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. If you felt that, you understand what that's talking about. That even when you talk about, God, I just need peace. I need peace in this decision. God, I need peace in this area. I want to just tell you that the peace and the direction of God is not always 100% peace. You're always going to have a little tinge of hope. Well, God, are you actually leading me to that job? God, are you actually, and you're going to be like, I'm believing. God, I'm looking. I'm, I'm watching what you're doing. But at the same time, there's always a little part of us like, is this actually going to happen? Could it actually happen? Barnabas Piper wrote this. He said, often the intellectual obstacle to belief is a convenient excuse for rebellion. See, how seeks to remove certainty. And sometimes you and I, when we ask how, 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 all the time about everything, what we're really doing is saying, I'm shielding myself, I'm hiding behind that, so I can continue to only be accountable to me. I can continue to not be accountable to a God who created me, a God who loves me, a God who cares about me, and we're just trying to be accountable to ourselves. It's a convenient excuse for rebellion. 
behind every question is the issue of trust. That's why we ask questions, right? Parents, you ask your high schoolers, well, what did you do at homecoming? And who was all there? And what happened? And did your team win the game? And you're going to ask all these different things about homecoming. Why? Because you're building trust. You're experiencing and building that. Who, on the other hand, requires trust and vulnerability? So when we ask the question not how, but we ask the question who, this requires trust and vulnerability. It's highly relational and requires interdependence and faith. When you make a step and a commitment towards something like marriage, you are entering something that's interdependent. It's not all up to you. It's up to the two of you. It requires vulnerability. It is interdependent upon one another. It requires faith. And Jesus, being the relational God he is, as we look in the New Testament in Mark chapter 8, if you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 8, we're going to spend some good time there today. But it might be on your smart device. You might actually have your Bible in your hand. But Jesus has just fed 4,000 people, okay? Now, here's the condition. Jesus just fed them like he spontaneously fed. There's 4,000 people listening to his teaching. They're getting hungry. He says, what do we have? You get some loaves, you get some fish. He blesses them. It multiplies miraculously, and 4,000 people are fed. That would be like me just saying, hey, uh, can I get my staff people real quick to just feed everybody in here with tri-tip because you're looking a little hungry. And so all of a sudden, my staff would come and be like, you're crazy. We gotta get like the rub in there and let it marinate overnight. We gotta get the barbecues. It's gonna take time to cook it. And it's gonna take time to deliver to everybody. And you see how many people there are here? I don't even think the grocery store has that many tri-tip that we could buy at one time. And right, we're gonna have all these excuses. Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 people. And when he does, they collect the leftovers of the bread and there are seven baskets left over. Okay, it's miraculous. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Jesus has miraculously divided food with a leftover. But what do they do? The disciples get in the boat with Jesus, and that's where we pick up today in Mark chapter 8, verse 14. It said, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Okay, let me just pause right there. If you got one loaf, and you got Jesus, are you going to go hungry? No, he's just fed 4,000 people. Now they left the seven baskets of leftovers on shore. They get in the boat, they only got one loaf. But they're like, big deal, right? We got Jesus. That's what you should be thinking, right? If he wants to multiply for 12 or 13, he can do it. But what happens? Jesus said, be careful, he warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fails to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, some of you in this room, you're doing the math. Is the correlation of 5,000 to 12 baskets equivalent to the 4,000 to 7? Stop it. (laughs) Stop that right now. 
You're trying to figure out how that all goes down. How does God do that? Is he limited to a certain percentage rate? Like what's going on, right? Stop it. Jesus asked them a question. Do you still not understand? In other words, he's not out of teaching mode. He is walking along with his disciples, with these, these brothers to teach them about who he is, not just simply how he does stuff. And so he's got them in the boat with them. There are different kinds of blindness. The first one is physical blindness. This one we call dark. And some people, legitimately, they're physically blind. They cannot see. Maybe it was from birth. Maybe it was from an accident. But they simply cannot see. It's what also happens to people like you and I who can see, but when you walk to the bathroom at night in the house and you don't see that Lego in the dark on the floor and you step on it with your bare foot, right? Sometimes you make the name of Jesus very powerful at that time, and I want to say let's keep it in context, right? It's what we call dark. It's physical blindness, but there's another type of blindness, And the other type of blindness is spiritual blindness, and this one we call doubt. Jesus realizes with his disciples that their lack of understanding has kept them in doubt. And it was a miracle, you know, feeding a huge number of people both times, but the results were different, you know, 12 or 7. And God is building with his disciples a track record of trust in himself, you know, it's, it's that he is the common denominator. They're still trying to figure out all the how, but Jesus is saying, I'm building a track record with you that I am the common denominator. It's not the number. It's not the percentage. It's not how I prayed. It's not any of that. It's that I'm the common denominator, but they weren't seeing it. It's not how I did it, Jesus is saying. It's who did it. Now, our world thinks in hypotheses, don't they? All the time. When we look out in the universe and we see things far away and we've got the greatest scientists and some of the greatest minds who study astronomy and they're saying, we think we're dealing in hypotheses. We we can't get there. It's too many light years away. And we, we can only reach it and we can only identify it by what we see through telescopes and Hubble and other things like that. But there's these greatest minds that are saying, I think it has these minerals there. I think that gravity and the physics are doing this. And they deal in hypotheses to be able to understand what they see is going on. They're trying to figure out how in the world does the universe work? And the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. We're looking for how and the hypotheses about how. And Jesus is saying, I created it all to point you to who. And sometimes, like the disciples, we don't get it. We want to remove the issue of doubt, we want to deal only with certainty. Our world says, maybe it happened this way. Maybe it happened that way. Our world is spiritually blind. God wants to reveal who did it. Effective people know that if you don't have clarity in your communication, you've got to change your mode of communication. You're like, if I'm doing this and they just didn't get it, I, I got to change something different so that they actually understand. And so that's what Jesus does, starting in the very next verse, Mark 8, 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his, have you ever read scripture and just thought, <laughs> did, did I just read what I thought I read? 
I mean, think about this. Hey, we're bringing you the blind guy, Jesus. He's like, no problem. Grabs the guy by the hand, takes him outside the village. Blind guy's there. He's like, all right, I'm with Jesus. I'm going. All of a sudden he hears. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't see it coming, right? (laughs) Nobody saw it coming. I do that sometimes when I'm like, seriously? That's what you did? You spit on the guy? Like, that is not okay. I don't know what it was like back then, but that... That's beyond the limits of what's okay. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They're like trees walking around. What's he saying? I see light and shadows. I see movement, but, but all I see is just like contrast. That's all I see. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Listen, there were two feedings, two miraculous feedings, and the disciples didn't get it. Now Jesus walks into the very next village, and he has a two-part healing of a blind man. The first one was a partial healing. His eyes were kind of opened. It's kind of what happened for the disciples a little bit with the feedings, that their eyes were kind of open, but they still didn't get it. So Jesus, in healing a blind man, we think about, well, maybe, it, wow, what's that technique? Maybe you have to bless it twice and spit, you know, or whatever. And you're like, if we're just trying to unpack how Jesus healed blind people, we're going to look at the technique. Well, you, uh, I guess he, uh, he had just eaten bread. So maybe it was bread spit. You know, I don't know what, right? But he's, you, we would always try to figure out how. And Jesus is like, no, even in healing a person, I'm still teaching the disciples who are right with me. I'm going to show what partial sight looks like and full awareness looks like. So that my disciples can get from partial blindness to clarity. Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The Luke account, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In that moment, it's a miraculous thing. Like all of a sudden what happens between the beginning of Mark 8 and now later in Mark 8, we see the disciples go from partial understanding, a little bit of clarity, to full realization that you are the Christ. You are God's Messiah. You are God become flesh. You are God dwelling among men. And they had clarity. Peter's confession showed that they had moved from doubt to belief. They moved from how it was done to who did it. Jesus healed at least two other blind men in scripture. Are you aware of that? And each time he healed a blind person, he did it differently. Why? Because he knows human nature. We would all be about, well, what's the technique? What's the secret recipe? What's the thing to do to heal a blind person? And we would try to look, well, this guy healed this way, and this guy, and this guy. And Jesus, I think, is so brilliant. He knows the human heart that we're always going to be reaching for how, and he's going, I am the healer. I am the common denominator. 
I am the one. Maybe before in your marriage you didn't have God, but now I am the common denominator in your marriage. Maybe in your work you didn't have that before. Maybe at your high school you didn't have that before, but now I want to open your eyes that I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Life might not work out all the way that you want, but I will be with you, and I am the one who can heal. Jesus wanted them to know that he did it. Well, who is Jesus? We just sang this song, you know, oh, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, there isn't a more beautiful name to sing than the name of Jesus. You can think of all the songs named after all the people in the world. Oh, Sherry, right? You can think of, you know, all these different names in, in pop culture and songs. There is, I'm just telling you, there is not a more beautiful name than the name of Jesus. We say, well, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, you're the guy who spit on a blind guy and healed him. But later, you, Jesus, were spit upon and you were beat and others laid their hands on you and they mocked you and they crucified you so that my sin and your sin could get wiped away. See, Jesus isn't asking of this man something that he's not willing to go through himself. In fact, he might even be giving a precursor that you may have thought that Jesus was just some martyr, but God's like, I want to open your eyes fully to the fact that I am God. I am the healer. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And Jesus stretched out his arms and took your sin and mine upon the cross to pay for something he never did inasmuch as a blind guy never chose to be born blind. That's who you are, Jesus. When in doubt, focus on who, not how. Charles Spurgeon said, the strong are not always vigorous, the wise are not always ready, the brave are not always courageous, and the joyous are not always happy. Some of you say, oh, I don't know. I I can't believe unless I have certainty. Well, then focus on who, not how. You're so focused on how. How, God, is this going to work out? How is this going to play out? Maybe I should guard my heart. Maybe maybe I should risk. But you're not sure that you want to unless you know how it's going to happen. And God's like, I'm moving you from how to who. When in doubt, focus on who, not how. Some of you say, well, I doubt God can fix where I'm broken. Focus on who could do the fixing, not how God's going to do it. Not how you're going to clean yourself up and fix yourself and then present yourself to God. How about you focus on a God who can do the impossible, a God who can make bread from nothing, a God who basically could create the universe because he just spoke it into being. Focus on who, not how. I mean, honestly, sometimes I think it'd be easier if God would just spit on me to heal my brokenness. Wouldn't it be easier? God, please, just, just spit on me, wipe it around, do what you got to do, fix, my, fix me, fix my brokenness, fix my stuff, fix the areas in my heart that just aren't like what you want them to be. It'd be a lot easier. But what's the reality? The reality is, truth be told, I'm more likely to spit at my distaste at times for a sacrificial life or for a servant's heart or something as easy as giving up my right to be right. That's the condition of humanity, right? That's how we act. That's how we are. Like, we're, I'm going to spit at that. It seems ridiculous. Got to be far easier if you just spit on me and you wipe it around and you heal that. Thankfully, 
the truth about God is not based on our feelings. How many of you in this room, you're like, well, I don't know. I can't give advice to somebody else because I've made so many mistakes in my life. Who told you that? Maybe because of the mistakes you made, you could give some good advice. Maybe the enemy doesn't want you giving good advice to somebody else. Some of you are like, well, I can't pray to God because the Lord knows I've sinned and this. And so, and so the enemy's winning. He's going, great. You can't pray. You can't pray to who? The reality is, if you were in Christ, you were declared righteous. When God looks at you, he sees the blood spilled by Jesus upon us. Christ's righteousness is ours. The New Testament, James chapter 5 said, the prayer of an effective person uh, is, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And you go, oh, maybe I'm not righteous. You get hung up on that. And I'm going, and you are in Christ. His righteousness is on you. So have you sinned? Yes. But Lord forbid that you let your sin keep you from praying for something else, for somebody else, or even yourself. You are praying to who, and you're trying to answer it by how. Well, I can't do that because I sinned. And the enemy's just clapping the whole time. Right on. We get caught up in our impossible situation. We're like, how would this ever work out, God? How could you ever do that? And the enemy's like, you just keep focusing on how and never turn to who, and you'll stay spiritually blind. And the enemy is applauding that. We're going to have feelings of uncertainty. We're going to have times where we doubt. And sometimes we're going to have to lay aside our feelings in moments of uncertainty. C.S. Lewis said this, faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods, right? Your feelings. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or a sound atheist, right? If we're driven by our feelings, we're all the time we're going to go up and down. We're going to ride that roller coaster. But it means knowing when to let our feelings off and trust the Lord when your feelings are all over the place. Asking well also means knowing when to stop asking questions. When you realize time and again, I have been searching for how, and I've been holding out there so I don't have to be accountable to God, and the truth is I gotta stop asking how it's all gonna happen and how it's all done, and I just need to trust the truth of the Bible that Jesus gave his life for my sin, that I can give my life to him. He will wash me as white as snow, and I will be forever in his presence. How does that all work out? How does that work out in us? You might say, I don't know the answers to how, and I wanna be certain. I don't wanna give myself to it until I'm certain. And God's saying, come to me. Get to the end of all your hows. And the excuses that you've been telling yourself for years that if you're honest with yourself, don't really hold water. And come to the God that you know is drawing you to himself. Years ago after my aunt died of cancer, I wrote this, this song because I was asking the question why a lot. And I wrote this, my struggle without you is lonely, so I cling to your control, and as I work through these feelings, please help me to let go, and I just want to know why. What's faith? What's trusting God? It's n telling your feelings where they need to get off, and you're going to hold to a God when you don't understand the why or the how, but you're going to trust yourself to the who.
so often in times of despair or tough times, we need God to fix it somehow, right? That's what we say. Well, it's got to get fixed somehow, and that's always in there, right? It's not some who. It's somehow is what we say. Show me, God, how you're going to fix this. But when you get alone with God and in his word, you realize you just needed to be reminded who is the healer. Who can fix it? Who is really on your side? Who works out things as he knows best? Whose timing is going to be better than your timing? Who it is who loves you and gave himself for you? At times like that, you and I need a brotherhood. We're in times of, of doubt. You and I need a brotherhood or a sisterhood around us. And there are times our feelings will be like, I just doubt, I just am not sure, I just don't know. And you need a brotherhood or sisterhood around you, which is why we encourage circles, because your circle will say, listen, that's fine. It's okay to be doubting. Doubt can lead to stronger faith. But while you're doubting, you just hold on to our trust until you've worked through the process. What does the enemy do? If he can get you doubting and isolating and you're like the lions who peel off the wildebeest from the herd, and then you're easy pickings. You need a circle. Number five in your outline, tell your friends who saves them and why he did it, then tell them how to be saved. Listen, so often you want to tell your friends, here's how you can be saved. If you would just come to church, if you would just do this, if you would just do that, this is how, a and you tell you how, 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 how. And they're going, I don't need how. Because what you're talking about is giving myself to a relationship with God. I need to know who. So what's the greatest thing you could do? You could say something like, I, I used to not understand what the big deal about Jesus was. And what, I mean, I didn't even understand that I was living all the time for myself. But then I found out who Jesus is and why he would love somebody like me. His truth helped me see clearly who he really is. And then you can say, then I prayed a prayer. Then I walked. Then I finally said and admitted to myself and others, I believe. I gave myself to Jesus. I gave you me. And that's the beginning and the turning point. So often we want to sell how. And God's saying, just tell them who I am. Who do others say I am? Oh, they'll say all sorts of things about who you are, God. Yeah, but who do you say I am? And when we seek him, we come to realize he is the Christ, the son of the living God. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just think about your own life. There are some of you in this room today. You've made a decision for Christ at some point in your life, and you're a believer, but right now, your impossible situation just seems too big. Your heart has been driving your actions and your trust and your emotion, and you just have been riding a roller coaster, and God is just wanting to remind you today who he is. Some of you have been asking God, God, when's this going to work? When's this going to get fixed? When's this going to happen? How is it going to happen? How is it ever going to work out? And God just is drawing your heart today to just be like, remember who I am. Would you invite me into the process? You've been controlling it for far too long. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is your time to be able to have that conversation with God about that. But there are others in this room. You would say, I have never asked Jesus to be my Lord. I've never acknowledged that he's God. I've never asked him to forgive me of my sin. I've never received his righteousness. I've never had my sins washed away. I've been trying to control it all somehow. But today you're realizing you need who? 
Jesus is. And if that's you here today, then right where you're seated, will you pray a prayer right after me, something like this, just pray this in your heart, right where you're seated, God hears you, just something like this. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation on the inside. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. Jesus, would you wash me as white as snow? Take my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.